State House leaders unveil their final road funding package. Luke Messer introduces a national voter ID bill. That plus the EPA visits East Chicago. Do nothing dudes and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 21st, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, legislative leadership announced an agreed-upon infrastructure plan that aims to fund Indiana's roads and bridges for the next 20 years. House and Senate lawmakers had haggled over the details of the road funding bill for weeks. The center of their disagreement was whether to shift all sales tax on gasoline dollars from the general fund to pay directly for roads. The House wanted an immediate and total shift. The Senate did not. Their compromise begins a gradual shift in 2020 into a dedicated road fund, one that the governor would be able to raid to pay for other critical needs, including schools and health care. The measure also includes a 10-cent gas tax hike with future automatic hikes tied to inflation and new registration fees, $15 for all vehicles, $150 for electric cars, and $50 for hybrids. All told, the measure will eventually generate more than $800 million a year for state roads and more than $300 million a year for locals. Should Hoosiers be satisfied with the final road funding package? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Now, it's important to note that as of this taping, the legislature is still wrapping up their work for this session, and lawmakers haven't officially voted to approve the Rhodes Bill. We'll have a full legislative session wrap-up next week. But that said, and Delaney, should Hoosiers be happy with this road plan? Let me see if I understand it correctly. In six or seven years, if, God willing, and the creeks don't rise, and Washington doesn't screw up health care, and we don't have a demand for additional education funding, and there isn't a crisis in child protective services, then there may be enough money for the roads in six or seven years, the amount of money that we need today. Is that what the program is? Well, they've argued that the need will be greater in the in, in future years, greater they've, than it is right now. They've identified a million two that they need now. Or a billion two. A billion two, excuse me, that they need now. This will generate a billion two in six or seven years. Am I wrong? That That is mostly true, yes. Okay. And so for the interim six or seven years, the roads are going to continue to deteriorate. Well, it's not They're as not if they'll be freeze. getting. They won't be getting no money in those years. No, but they won't be getting enough money in those years to do what needs to be done by their own admission. And what they're going to deteriorate further because we're not doing what we need to do. And then we're going to put the same amount of money that we say we need now in six or seven years. And that's the program we're supposed to be happy about. Jennifer Hollowell. I think that this is a really great step forward and a demonstration of really strong Republican leadership both from the House and the Senate and the governor's office. I mean, this does a lot to move the state forward and address the need for infrastructure, road improvements. It does increase also what locals are getting by roughly $300 million In annually. six or seven years. Over, over the course of several years, but also starting very soon. And additionally, it, it, it sets it up so that we are addressing the need long-term by tying it to inflation 
and it's probably the strongest, one of the strongest infrastructure proposals, plans that we have had in our state's history. So I think that it's uh, an incredibly positive step that will address these really dire needs that we have to keep Indiana at the crossroads of America, and Republicans deserve a lot of credit for it. Oh, come on. I, I can't believe you delivered that with a straight face. I really can't. I mean, it's absolutely it true. Is, and it, is, it is, again, the approach that they take. It's too little. It doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't address the problem head on. It, it puts a Band-Aid over the problem, it, which is it exactly does the, the way problem, they it. And it does infuse a lot more money to address these In six these or seven needs. years, what about no, now? It, it, we it have starts, bridges collapsing. It starts soon. It starts in 2018, and it goes it over does the course not, of time. It does it not move the sales tax to 2020. It. it shifts it over time, but it's still infusing all this cash. But there is a fuel tax, tax increase. That would be and, and so the registration fees, and I think, yeah, let's not overlook that because, well, I'm not suggesting any uh, one here is uh, a nominee for Profiles and Courage. I will say that this General Assembly actually did what probably has needed to be done for a long time, which is advocate a tax increase because you can't be, you know, living in, in the 1970s and 1980s in a 2017 world. It just, I mean, it costs go up, and the old fuel tax, of course, was not. Uh, calibrated, or I shouldn't say was not tied to the inflation rate. So that's why one of the reasons the state was in the pickle it was in. This way, in the bill, I presume that we, we will eventually see a sign, there is, it is, in fact, indexed to inflation. So that's but a capped, big, but... Capped, and, but still. That, that but that's, does, that's better than, than right. what we had before. And then you do throw in the fees. So there is some uh, revenue coming into it in the, in the front end. Again, the challenge is, as it as always is, in 20 years, will this still be the mechanism? Or was, as was the case with major moves, another funding mechanism, yeah, we remember yeah. not too long ago, another, money was diverted for other, for other critical needs. Uh, the, everybody who's, who's, who's been writing the Rhodes Bill along has, has agreed on the numbers. $1.2 billion a year average for the state, less in the beginning, more later on. Yeah. 775 for locals, average a year. This, number, this bill, and by their own admission, will never get to those numbers. So is it good enough? Well, I guess the art of politics is the art of the possible, and I think that's what was possible given the limitations put on by the fact that they didn't want to shift all the gasoline tax immediately and replace it with a cigarette tax. That was a big internal struggle that ended up being no cigarette tax, so no immediate shift. And you also have the encouragement of additional to of tolling for additional uh, revenue, and, and that was something that Senator Kenley was counting on and advocated fairly strongly so that that would infuse, in his opinion, additional money into the process. So you had some big philosophical fights here uh, within the Republican caucus. There were some who were very dead set against raising taxes. There were others who didn't like the index and no. having that automatically escalate. So I think the fact that they got it done and there is a significant infusion is very good. Now I'd like to see him look at other aspects of transportation like rail, airports Amen. and other Although things. Although there is some, South Shore Rail and so forth, there is some, that's, uh, some that's positive in a, news in on a that That's in a different way, yeah, yeah right. that's a different right. bill. But right. um, no, I think that a comprehensive look and alternative modes of transportation uh, is going to be critical, and I hope but, that. But that's going to be out. hard to do when they have a water infrastructure discussion coming oh, as we talk about them. There's lots of critical majorities. And they've got the governor. And if they can't do it, what are they doing in control? Sixth District Representative Luke Messer introduced a bill in Congress this week to establish a nationwide voter ID law. 
Messer calls it the Election Integrity Act. Modeled after Indiana's voter law, the measure would require anyone voting in a federal election beginning in 2020 to show valid government-issued photo ID. The legislation would require states to provide that ID free of charge. Messer says the legislation is, in his words, a common-sense fix that provides consistency in election laws around the country while improving voter confidence. The Indiana Democratic Party calls Messer's bill political grandstanding and says it tramples on states' rights. Messer, a rumored U.S. Senate candidate, would potentially face off in the GOP's primary against Todd Rakita, who helped implement Indiana's voter ID law as Secretary of State. Jennifer Hollowell, is Luke Messer's national voter ID bill a political stunt? No, of course it isn't. I think it's a common sense approach. We have had lots of issues across the country. It makes sense to have a consistent law, and it makes sense for that to be Indiana's law, based on Indiana's law, which has been tested and upheld by the United States Supreme Court, and it is a national model. So it makes a ton of sense to do it that way. Republicans, and, though, Republicans, though, the party clearly of states' rights that that that. that as many powers as, as are supposed to be given to the states are. Isn't voting one of those party, one of those powers that should belong to the states? But we're, ta- we're talking about federal elections and having a consistent rule across the country, one, by the way, that is very common sense. And when you ask people if they support showing a, a photo ID to vote, they say yes. Most of them assume in states, of course, everyone would do that. No, not every state does that. So it makes a ton of sense. It doesn't disenfranchise voters. Democrats will say that it has been tested and tested, and Democrats couldn't produce a single person who couldn't vote based on Indiana's law. So it makes a ton right. of sense for well, this to be it's going to go the back law up across to the, the land. Again, and we'll see whether it's upheld as constitutional. But you're right, it's total political grandstanding. What do you do, for example, in a state that doesn't require the voter suppression ID that Indiana requires, which is what it's designed to do, and which is why we have last year the second lowest turnout, the year before the lowest turnout of any state in the union for voting. It's deliberate, okay? That's what it is, and it's been a part of the Republican mantra and playbook for years. But the, the bottom line is, you're right, it's states' rights, number one. And number two, what do you do with those states that aren't as regressive as Indiana and don't have the voter ID? Does somebody go with them into the voting booth if there's a federal election and say, well, you can vote for the state, but you can't vote for the federal? I mean, what do you do under those circumstances? What happens to the secrecy of the ballot? How do, would you have to have separate ballots for that? And who pays for it? I mean, it's, it's completely ridiculous, and he hasn't even thought it out, and he's supposed to be a lawyer. So it's obvious political grandstanding on his part. And it's an attempt to curry favor with Trump, obviously, because he had this massive conspiracy that all the Republican secretaries of state said didn't exist. Look here, you're trying to make it complicated. It's not it that complicated. complicated. You show your ID, you get a ballot. You show your ID for all kinds of things in this world, and no one has a problem with it. And by the way, the, you don't have to pay for the ID, so the government will issue oh, yeah. free you just IDs. Have to go there to and get if it. there was proof that it was suppressing anyone, you would have been able I'll to demonstrate that. And there wasn't, it's on, suppresses, there wasn't it's, a single case to do that. But there, I can't give you one. there is voter fraud, though, and one. there are cases in Indiana of petition fraud, registration fraud, absentee fraud, and that is why these sorts of things matter for yeah. integrity you in our process. You can get people to come out and vote you if you're bedridden, but you can't room, get them to come out and give you an ID if you're bedridden. It definitely suppresses the vote. John Schwann, is political stunt or not, does this have a chance of becoming law? No. 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 <laughs> I think the issue here... This, it's, it's simple and it's complicated. It's a little both, but here's the issue. Yes, it was upheld in, what, 2008 right. by the U.S. Supreme Court. But what was upheld was an Indiana statute focusing on Indiana election law. That's not the same 
as taking that and then extrapolating it or expanding it to federal because the courts, I think from day one, have effectively said that even in federal elections, the states run those elections, which is why, you know, at 1201 we see, what's the place at Knoxville, Ditch or Niche, Knox or whatever? Dixville, Notch. Thank you. I knew it was somewhere up there. Uh, And then you have some states that are, you know, Eight to six. Some are in the evening. Some have uh, longer periods. Guess what? We don't have uniformity or conformity across the the board with federal elections. So, again, it is an an odd sort of juxtaposed argument over states' rights in a way that we typically wouldn't see. So it doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. We can stipulate that. But I do think it's fascinating because he's co-opting Todd Rokita's issue in the Senate race. I didn't say it was fascinating. He was in the the state legislature when this happened. He was also leading the state party as all these things were implemented. So he has... Plenty he of has familiarity in a role in dealing I, with this. All right, moving, moving on. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, is Congressman Luke Messer's introduction of a national voter ID bill a political stunt as he prepares for a possible Senate run? A yes or B, no. Last week's question, should public colleges and universities invite people with potentially racist viewpoints to speak on campus? 55% say yes, 45% Say no, they shouldn't. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. The Environmental Protection Agency's new leader visited East Chicago this week to learn more about its lead contamination crisis. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt met with Governor Eric Holcomb, state and local officials, to discuss ongoing work helping residents affected by the northwest Indiana city's lead crisis. In a short statement, Pruitt said he was there to help restore confidence. The NAACP, including its national leadership, were also in East Chicago and delivered a list of demands to Pruitt and other leaders. The organization says they want the EPA to be more responsive, expand soil and blood lead testing efforts, and establish a victim's compensation fund to make residents whole. John Schwannis, is the EPA doing enough to help the people of East Chicago? Well, I mean, it's it's not a fait accompli. It's, it's underway now. And so, and reporters were not necessarily in the, the closed discussions, but what Joe Donnelly and others, uh, Democrats, said afterward is that they had been assured by Pruitt and company that there would, in fact, uh, be the dollars there, that there would, in fact, be uh, a proper execution of this plan to clean up this area. So take him at face value, as apparently Senator Donnelly is, and the answer, I guess, is yes. But, and there, I guess, there always is a but in politics. Again, this is an office that uh, earlier, I mean, a day before this meeting took place, the rumor had uh, gone around that it was one of two regional agencies, EPA agencies, that the Trump administration had targeted, perhaps for closure. Um, And you look at that and the fact that the the proposed federal budget that came from the administration looks at a as much as a third reduction in funding. You've already seen... 40%. Uh, in the Superfund cleanup, I think it's about a third as well, from maybe okay. $1.1 $1. $1 billion to $700 million and change. So, I mean, the numbers about... And the, and the staff reductions, which have been significant agency-wide as well, don't... I won't say they don't necessarily align with, with the promise of getting this done, but it makes it difficult for the two to reconcile. Are there mixed messages there? Yeah, there is a mixed message. And the bottom line is the people who are living in this place who are potentially in danger of their health uh, and many millions of other people who find themselves. I mean, Flint is one example. And you mentioned the uh, water infrastructure in Indiana. 
look, these are, these are problems that have been um, either ignored for a long time or are coming to light as we've moved from industrialization into kind of a post-industrial world, and you still have the detritus from that. And so we have to deal with that. And when you're reducing staff and when you're reducing money, that doesn't put you in a footing to be able to deal with that on, from and a both public of those hot safety you standpoint. would be the Region 5 office in that's Chicago, right. which is, right. I think, interesting as well. This is the first Superfund site in the country that Scott Pruitt has visited in his new role. Is that notable for well, the people of Indiana? I hope so. I mean, I hope they deliver what they promised uh, to Senator Donnelly. I hope they do. I mean, they, certainly this would be an area you would think would be particularly sympathetic since it's right in the middle of Mike Pence's uh, uh, area, uh, his state. And uh, certainly, it's not in the middle of his state. Well, it's not in the middle of the state. You know what I mean. It's part of his state. How about has that better, John? Thanks. Anyway, it, so you would think of all of the possible Superfund sites, this would be targeted. But we'll have to see what he does with the budget. And when he's talking about totally decimating EPA, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not confident that they're going to follow through. I just hope they do. Should the people of East Chicago feel confident? I think so, and I think that what we heard from folks who were in the meeting is that they were very pleased with that. It is the first site that he has visited. That shows you the priority level. I think it helps that the vice president is from Indiana, and that's potentially a good sign of things to come. But this is also really incredible leadership by Governor Holcomb in bringing all these folks together. And as he said, it it will take local leaders and state leaders and federal leaders, and we have a long way to go to get there, but this is a very good first step. You'll, of course, give Senator Donnelly some credit for that as well, I'm sure. He attended the Young men, young men labeling themselves the do-nothing dudes have been popping up at Senator Joe Donnelly's offices around the state this week thanks to the National Republican Senatorial Campaign. The point that the NRSC is trying to make is that Joe Donnelly hasn't accomplished anything in his time in Congress. The do-nothing dudes sit in lawn chairs outside Donnelly offices, holding signs that say, do nothing Donnelly, with messages like this. Hey man, I wish I could sit on my butt and do not much of anything for a whole decade, just like our good Senator Joe Donnelly. The NRSC's underlying message is that Donnelly hasn't had a bill that directly became law, which is true. Many of Donnelly's efforts, mostly surrounding veterans' issues, have been successfully included in the annual National Defense Bill. John Ketzenberger, are Hoosiers going to buy that Donnelly is a do-nothing senator? I don't think so. Um, Look, the vice president gets criticized a lot for his time in Congress for having never passed a bill either. And I think the more important thing, the thing that Hoosiers pay attention to is whether or not if they call, they get service. Uh, and whether or not if they turn on the television, they see, uh, in that case, Congressman Pence, or in this case, Senator Donnelly, advocating on their behalf in, in important issues like Veterans Affairs. And I think Senator Donnelly has done that well. Now, the Democrat or the Republicans are going to take their hold, and you've you got to give them credit for a little creativity. It reminds, uh, Ann and I were talking earlier about a campaign in, what was it, 1988, 92? With uh, Lindley Pearson, and the Democrat Party was out in front of the State House every day with a limerick saying, where's the plan, Lindley Pearson? Um, so, you know, it's a good tactic, but I don't think it's going to have an effect in the election. Will it stick? Well, the danger of bringing out a, a measuring stick like this is that that same measuring stick can be used to beat uh, Republicans over the head, too, because you look at, like, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, as of an hour ago, I guess, and he only, I think, has passed, uh, seen three bills since 1999 passed. Bernie Sanders, on the other side, certainly a Democrat, but has had a fairly uh, minimal record in terms of passing bills, but he used to call himself the king of amendments and had had hundreds of successful amendments. And then we talk about constituent casework where some members of Congress, I don't think, 
see, they say that's their, that's their bread and butter, and that's what they're going to do. So there are other measuring sticks. Um, so will it stick? I guess if you have the, the message and the ability to convey it, it might. But my thought was, if now we, the, the conventional wisdom that all protesters are apparently actors getting uh, hired, <laughs> I will say that these guys have a much better gig. Their agent is better because all they have to do is sit there, whereas the other true. people have to scream and yell. So uh, I want their agent. Uh, Joe Donnelly's bills have, have uh, I think, for the last four or five years, become part of the national defense bill every year. So is this a, an effective uh, message to be using against him? Well, th- this reminds me of 2008 during the ACORN massive uh, voter registration fraud effort, and um, Republican offices all across the country received squirrel costumes that we were supposed to have people go out to events to get attention. And clearly, we're getting attention. They're getting news coverage on this right now. I think that as we move forward, the case um, against the senator will develop with some more meat, and hopefully people will be motivated to knock on doors and make phone calls. Considering how early this is in the process, is this a good first kind of foray into, into the campaign? Yeah, I think it's a, a desperation move, frankly, and it's I- interesting to me that they didn't coordinate this with Todd Rokita, who's also running for the nomination, because Todd Rokita was actually uh, effusive in his praise for Joe Donnelly about how much time he spends in the state, how he sees him everywhere, how he's working so hard for Hoosiers, so you know, it's kind of interesting that there wasn't that coordination. But, but Joe Donnelly has been around the state. It's Veterans Affairs and Constituent Service and being there and listening on little obscure issues that he can have an impact with um, that are very important to individual people and groups of people. And just getting so a I'm bill confident. out of your, your own chamber, especially if you control the chamber, is not that great of an accomplishment because think of during the period of Obamacare, what the House passed 54 bills repealing Obamacare. Uh, Still yeah. in place as of yeah. today. All right, three finalists were named this week as potential replacements for retiring Indiana Supreme Court Justice Robert Rucker. The three finalists chosen by the state's Judicial Nominating Commission are Clark County Judge Vicki Carmichael, Wabash County Judge Christopher Goff, and Boone County Judge Michael Kincaid. They're vying to replace Robert Rucker, who steps down after 26 years. Rucker was the second African-American member of the state's high court and, as he retires, said he hopes his replacement will bring some diversity to the bench. Indiana has had only two people of color on the Supreme Court and only two women, and one of those was an African-American woman. And Delaney, while Governor Holcomb's choices aren't exactly robustly diverse, how much should that play, though, into his mind? I think it, play, it should play a significant role in his mind, and, and certainly gender should play a significant role. But the other aspect of that is that the, the woman is a Democrat. And it is, we have to go back decades before we, we to, to find a court that was all one party. If either of the other two are appointed, it will be all Republican. And I think that's dangerous because the perspective of both a female and a Democrat is going to be different. And we need to hear those perspectives on the court when you've got one party control of the executive and the legislative as well. What, what do you think here matters a little bit more? Um, the sort of ideological diversity or gender diversity? I mean, I think that you weigh a lot of things when you make this decision, and the governor will be faced with that. Generally speaking, I would like to see more women and more diversity in all kinds of places, the legislature, in executive offices, in boardrooms. Um, And so that is somewhat of a factor. But in this case, we also need to be promoting women and, and people of color into these kinds of positions. And the commission, I think, interviewed 
20 people, went through a couple of different rounds of, of interviews, and then nominated these three people who they think, uh, you know, went out on the merits. And so the governor has to weigh that decision, and I trust that he will do it very well. Yeah, the Judicial Nominating Commission didn't exactly have a, a robustly diverse pool, only two people of color uh, in, right. in the t- of right. the 20 candidates. So uh, is diversity a serious problem for the judiciary in this oh, state? I, I, we'll stipulate you want the judiciary to look like the general uh, population. I think that's a given. But I, I'll just put up my commercial here. You know, there aren't many areas where Indiana can, Hoosiers can take out their foam number one fingers and wave them around with justifiable pride. The judicial selection process in Indiana is an area, I think, where Indiana could be and should be held up as a, as a model. You have very unsavory elections for these judgeships in other states that are really almost repulsive. Wisconsin, uh, notably. Uh, and it, and here, Texas, on the other hand, Texas, you have, too. and keep in mind, Hoosiers, these are open hearings where people are interviewed, and shame on, on members of the public and reporters who have gotten jaded about how good they have it in terms of transparency. <laughs> but this was a great process. They work with what they're dealt. You know, you're not pulling people. It's not like filling a jury where you have to go and pull people off the streets, I guess. So. Robert Rucker, when he announced his retirement, speaking to the press, said... I would really like to see my replacement um, uh, inject some diversity into the court. Is Vicki Carmichael like the go-to option here for for Eric Holcomb? I'm sure in in, uh, Justice Rucker's mind it probably is. you know, and I, he's got a lobby, right? I mean, that's his only chance to have any kind of a, an effect on this. But um, one other thing that was pointed out by Ed Feigenbaum this week, uh, it, it, because of the choices that he has, there won't be a trial lawyer on the um, uh, bench that's after dangerous. this. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.